In your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. We have been following Jesus, so to speak, down the road called compassion. Biblical compassion. Not just understanding what Jesus taught about it, but ultimately wanting to be like Jesus. Amen? Right? That, that's the goal of our sanctification, of transformation, is ultimately not just to understand intellectually what Jesus taught, but ultimately to be like Jesus, to glorify him in our life and everything we do. Really, Christ is our life. And so as we follow him down this road of compassion... We've seen that, that Jesus oftentimes in the New Testament was moved with compassion. Mark 6:34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Two weeks ago we saw Jesus, when he looked at the crowds, right, rather than being annoyed, rather than being bothered because he and his disciples hadn't had a chance to eat, he looked at the crowds And the way that he saw them profoundly impacted how he felt about them. That he had compassion. And we saw that that biblical compassion is is literally defined as being moved in your inwards. Right? It's your guts. It's actually your bowels. It's your intestines. It's, It's literally being moved so deeply that you're compelled to action. Okay, so in that sense, it's different than what we would think is sympathy and pity, just sort of feeling bad. When you have biblical compassion, you are moved so profoundly and so deeply that you're just compelled to action, right? So Jesus saw, saw the crowds, and he had compassion on them, right? And in that compassion, what, what did he do? He was called to teach. He said, you know, their real need is to know the good shepherd. And we talked two weeks ago about real needs versus felt needs, right? And, and it's important, you know, we do meet felt needs. But ultimately, as a church, we understand that people's real need is what? To know the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, right? In Matthew twenty thirty four, there was two blind men. It says Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. There was a leper in Mark 1. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. So Jesus you follow him in the gospels as he moved around from place to place this idea of compassion was really the heartbeat the core of why he did what he did he was moved with compassion last week we looked at the entire book of jonah and we kind of saw and we were challenged that as much as we would amen compassion right compassion right we saw in the book of jonah that eh, not always such an easy thing not in, we, saw, we saw the book of Jonah through the eyes of God's compassion. And what did we see last week? That Jonah, he wasn't thrilled. He wasn't thrilled, right? It, it was more than this miracle story of, of some guy being eaten by a whale, which it wasn't a whale. It was really a fish, right? And we saw that Jesus actually affirmed that this really happened, right? So, so Jonah is sent to Nineveh. The cruel, barbaric enemies of Israel. God says, hey, go there and preach. What does Jonah do? Goes the opposite way. Right? 
God said, hey, go 500 miles east. He was heading to the coast of Spain, a place called Tarshish, right? And we looked at the core, right? In, in Jonah, we saw at the end in Jonah 4, 1 and 2, that Jonah goes to Nineveh eventually, right? The whole whale thing, the whole fish thing. He goes and he gets eaten by this fish, kind of has this come to Jesus moment, right? The Bible says he vomits him out and he says, okay, I'll go. So he goes to Nineveh, right? He preaches. And what happens? Revival! They repent, right? Over 500,000 people, even the king, right? God doesn't bring calamity. God says, whoo, okay, awesome. Everyone's celebrating except who? Jonah, he's ticked. Right? Can you imagine we do something at Libby Bowl? We invite the Ojai Valley, and it's a gospel presentation. It gets filled, 999 seats, Right? And then people on the back, we, 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 someone comes in, preaches the gospel. A thousand people in Ojai get saved, repent, turn from their ways, right? Can you imagine? How many of you would celebrate that? Yeah, except if you were Jonah and were mad because you didn't like them, right? And you wanted God's wrath on the people of Ojai, Right? And Jonah, we, we looked at that last week. What was up with Jonah? What was going on? Was, was he racist? Was it political? Was it, what, what was really, why, did he, why was he so mad? And we found out he was mad at God. Look at Jonah. We saw Jonah 4. He, he admits it. He gets so mad. says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. 500,000 people repent. God doesn't throw lightning bolts. Jonah's mad. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He's mad at who? God. In fact, in a weird way, he's throwing scripture at God. Isn't that crazy? He's he's using scripture against God. I knew. If I would go there and preach, oh, you're just so compassionate. You're the compassionate God, right? He's so mad at God. And we checked ourselves because, because we had to really, I mean, as much as we're like, what's up with that? We asked ourselves, are there Ninevites in our life? Are there people in our life if God said, hey, go share the good news? Hey, I want to have compassion on that person. Or those people that, quite honestly, we would have a Jonah moment. Nope. I might pray for them once in a while, but I'm not going to go and show compassion to them. God, don't you know what they did? Don't you know how they talk about me behind my back? Don't you know how they stole from me? Don't you know how they hurt me? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Right? And we were challenged in our own lives to really submit and and yield to God's compassion to allow him to change us and enlarge our heart, right? And I shared with you even my story in ministry where God, as I was in youth ministry and came through youth ministry, that even in youth ministry, God called me and challenged me to go reach out to kids in neighborhoods and from backgrounds that were completely foreign to me. He sent me places in San Diego that initially, quite frankly, I didn't want to go. I had bad experiences with certain groups of people growing up 
And quite frankly, had no desire to go in that part of San Diego. I knew exactly how to get around that. And God's like, hey, there's a student, lives in an apartment complex, wants to come to church in the heart of that neighborhood. And, and I was challenged because it's on my way to our church. I usually go this way. All I have to do is go this way. So it's not an issue of can't. It quickly became an issue of won't or will you. And that was a, that was a moment of challenge for me in, in, in God enlarging my heart of his compassion and being willing to go places, even Uganda, way out of your comfort zone, right? Places that you ordinarily wouldn't think in your paradigm and in your worldview and in your experience and your box, right? There might even be places here in Ojai. There might even be people here in Ojai that if God called you to go reach out to them, you might have a bit of a Jonah moment. <sighs> I don't know. And have the best of experiences. You know, the, uh, it's amazing. We saw last week how God can use this wonderful thing called compassion in our sanctification. We amen it and we raw raw compassion until we're called to go be compassionate and get out of our comfort zone and give sacrificially and potentially be injured or wounded or something. You know, in our definition, happen. And God says, well, whose compassion is this? Whose compassion are you, are you basing your life on, mine or yours, right? And we saw that. And I love this quote by, by Warren Wiersbe. It says, we have little control over the circumstances of life. We can't control the weather or the economy, and we can't control what other people say about or do to us. There is only one area where we have control. We can rule the kingdom inside. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart, right? And we saw in this area of compassion that, yeah, we kind of get it cognitively. We understand it. It's not rocket science. Be compassionate. It's to be moved in the inside to go do something. Our challenge is that it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And, and if we're open and honest with the Lord about the condition of our heart, then, then our, our heart is fertile for him to begin to grow us. Stretch us, sanctification, transform us, if we're honest and open. And this morning, we're going to look at a, at a very familiar passage. And, and my prayer for us is that we're honest and we're open in this area of compassion. And, and in Luke 10, in Luke 10, uh, from 25 to 37, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. How many of your Bibles have a little heading that says the parable of the Good Samaritan. Does anyone's Bible have that heading? Okay. You got to disregard that. <laughs> a, because Jesus never describes him as good. He ne- Jesus doesn't even use the word good. And what has happened is this passage, with the best of in- intentions, is sort of Oh, it's about the Good Samaritan. I know what a Good Samaritan is. A Good Samaritan is someone who stops by the roadside and helps someone change a flat tire. Right? That's a Good Samaritan. Someone, we sort of have this idiom that, that, that Good Samaritan is someone who goes out of their way to help someone in need. Okay, that's fine. But that's not why this story was told. And, and I'm going to encourage you, 
it's going to be challenging because you want to say, Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan. I'm a Good Samaritan. I did something good. And, and, and if you limit it and if you sort of misapply the primary reason for this being told, then it just becomes about being a do-gooder. And it becomes more about just doing good stuff as a Christian. Right? Now, let me be real, real clear about this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good things. Okay, what I'm saying is the primary reason that Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan isn't for an encouragement to do good works. Because Jesus isn't even talking to his disciples. He's talking to an expert in the law, and we're going to see this. So this isn't an admonition to his followers. He's not preaching to, to his followers. He's having a conversation, and he's actually confronting and challenging an expert religious guy. That's the setting in the context. Now, should we be doing good works? Okay, let me give you some verses so you don't say, well, Pastor Richie said we're not supposed to be good Samaritans because that's not what it meant. No. All right? Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Amen? Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 1 John 3.17 and 18, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and truth. So, biblically, Are we supposed to go do good things? Okay. Yes. This parable is not about doing good things. In the context of why, and when say why, of why Jesus shared it. Jesus had a very specific point in the story of a Samaritan. Okay, and we're going to look at that. And, and in that, here's the thing. I have been challenged, and my prayer is that we would understand, if we understand the context, if we understand why Jesus told it, what his point was, I think there's an opportunity for all of us in this area of compassion to be challenged, to grow this morning, to grow this morning. Right? So let's read, let's read the entire context of this story, starting in verse 25, Luke 10. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, so typically we focus on verses 30 to 37 as the parable of the quote-unquote Good Samaritan, right? What's really important in this to understand what's going on here biblically is verse 25, right? The whole genesis, the whole reason for the story is that an expert, okay, in Old Testament law, right, an expert comes up to Jesus to test him. Now, it wasn't uncommon as rabbis traveled around, rabbi to rabbi, uh, teacher to teacher, that they would engage in discussion slash debate. Hey, what do you believe about this? Hey, what's your interpretation of scripture here? Right? So this expert in the law, this expert in the Old Testament, comes up to test Jesus, verse 25. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, underlining, you may want to underline or circle that word do. That first question sets the understanding and the context for the story that Jesus tells. Okay? The expert is going to ask him two questions, which you have to absolutely understand what's going on behind the scenes in his heart to understand the point of the story about the Samaritan, right? So he asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Coming from a Jewish mindset, works, salvation, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember the rich young ruler? Very similar conversation, right? Jesus flips it around, answers his question with a question. I love that. How many of you kind of get annoyed when you ask someone a question and they answer you? Well, what do you think? Well, what do you think, right? This is an expert. So he, he comes, he, he's coming here with his motive. His heart is really not sincere. He's testing Jesus. He asks him a question. Jesus flips it. Well, you're an expert, right? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is he doing? He's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he quotes a summary of the Old Testament law. Sounds familiar, right? Remember? Someone asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Right? In Matthew 22, Right? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, Jesus affirms that. If you look at the totality of the Old Testament, it comes into those two things. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with your whole being. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right? Look what it says here. 
verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. And then he says something very interesting. Do this and you will live. Hmm. Do this and you will live. What's Jesus doing? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, it says this. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. For the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So according to Jesus, according to the Old Testament, if you keep the law, you will live. What's the problem? What's the problem? Okay, let me ask it this way. How many of you, when you were in school, preferred the teacher to grade on a curve? Anyone? I love that too. Because when a teacher said, I'm grading on a curve, I look around the room. Based on what I see in this class, I like the curves. Because I'm pretty sure I'm going to do better than most of y'all. Right? How many, that's, we like the curve because it's based on other people's performance. Right? Some prefer straight scale. Anyone? Right? No one wants to admit it. Straight scale has nothing to do with other people's performance. Right? Question. What's God's grading scale? Now, some, some think that God is grades on a curve. And you will hear this. I'm a good person. Some people hope, slash maybe even believe, that God grades on the curve. I'm not as bad as. I see things, I see people, I see wicked people on TV. I'm, I'm not as bad as them. I go to the church. I go to the well. I'm a good person. Right? So we kind of have this God grades on a curve thing. Some people believe, nah, it's a straight scale. And so they get into works, hoping hoping to get, you know, move up the scale. In fact, that's what sets evangelical Christianity apart from any other main, mainline religion. All the other religions in the world are trying to get there, earning, works, being good enough, scales, and right? We're the ones that are set free from that. Amen? Yeah. We're the ones that are set free. And here's the crazy thing. You are really amen when you find out that God's scale isn't a curve. It's not a straight He requires what? Perfection. 100%. 100%. And if you've blown it once, how many of here would be honest and say you've blown it at least once? You would, you would honestly, in a moment of ultimate transparency amongst brethren, would say, I have sinned at least once in my life. Anyone? Anyone this morning? Okay. Galatians 3, 10, and 12. Look at this. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do what? Everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Uh, on, on the contrary, the man who does these things will live by faith. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking what? 
all of it. Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, the purpose of the law wasn't to save from sin, but to produce the knowledge in us that we're guilty. That was the purpose of it. And that's not real popular. And I get that. And that's why I've been praying about this, because, you know, we kind of joke, yeah, curve, straight scale. And then, and then we realize, wait, if I've broken it once, I'm guilty of it all? Ouch. See, sometimes you have to be confronted with and, and, and wrestle with and yield to the bad news so that the good news is good news. So, so in one sense, if the bad news is God's scale is perfection and one and done, now you understand all have sinned and fallen short. That's the bad news. Then the good news becomes really good. Amen? Then the good news becomes really good. Because if you're at that place, you're like, are you kidding me? Not just one. I got volumes for the week. And the good news is, in Christ, I'm clothed in the righteousness. He's pleased with me positionally. That's good news. Right? And this is, this is what's going on. This is the heart of why he's going to tell this story. Right? Because look at what's going on here. So the guy says, do this and you will live. And Jesus is calling him out. Okay, do this perfectly, continuously, constantly, Mr. Expert in the Law. Sure. And so this expert in the law, he's struggling right now. Like we all do when we get called out. Look what it says. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So he, he comes, he's, he has this, I think, a wonderful, compassionate moment with Jesus where Jesus says, hey, dude, here's the deal. You, you want to go down the law road? Okay, let's go down the raw road. The, the, the law road. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Just do it perfectly. And you're good to go. Oh. Hmm. So who is my neighbor? You ever been in a, in a discussion slash debate slash argument with someone and you're winning and they try to just go on a whole nother route? Anyone? Anyone to get into it with your kids? Or when you were a kid, okay, let's flip it. When you were a teenager and you came home late or you did something and you were busted and your parents were coming down on you. How many of you became really adept at switching, the, at just deflecting it, bringing up something that really was just designed to get it off of your guilt? Anyone? I did that all the time. Well, right? Somehow it becomes my parents' fault because you're really good at deflecting off of our own guilt. So, so this guy's struggling. So as an expert, as a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, he goes technical, right? He tries to deflect it. He asks Jesus, uh, so who is my neighbor? Let's define terms here, Jesus. Let's just define terms here. 
right? And, 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 and he wants to justify himself. He wants to kind of, you know, he's confronted with pride. He's being called out. I don't know how many listeners were around, but he's struggling. This expert in the law is getting called out with his imperfections and his need for a savior because he, he can't do it. He's probably already blown it, right? And so he goes to deflection. And, and what's really interesting, think about this. Who's my neighbor? Another way to say it, and who isn't? See, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get all technical and create this little box to try to fit himself into that box. So he can somehow say, see, I'm good. Jesus, let's just make this real technical. Let's just, get, let's just define terms. Break out the dictionary. Break out the Hebrew study Bible. Define neighbor. Because he's hoping that in Jesus' definition, he fits. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to get out of what's going on. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue, right? And, and what's challenging is you can kind of understand it because in, in Jewish tradition and in Jewish law, there was some debate about who my neighbor was. Some Jews, many Jews, believed that my neighbor was just a fellow Jew. And it was defined neighbor equals fellow Jew. Others, right, in, in, would say, look at um, Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Leviticus 19:33 and 34. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right? So there was debate. Some people wanted to define neighbor as very tight. Someone very near. It literally means someone who is near. So my family or a fellow Jew. Others were like, no, neighbor includes everyone, even aliens. Right? So he asked, he asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? He's really trying to justify himself. He's really trying to, 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 to deflect it a little bit. And, and Jesus kind of knows what's going on in his heart. And he's still trying to, 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 to work the system of do's and don'ts, of works, of trying to justify himself and his self-righteousness. There's a heart issue going on here. There's a heart issue. As a youth pastor, uh, there were times when uh, I would deal with high schoolers, uh, and I would come to the place in our school year when I would teach on relationships, dating, right? And uh, at one point, we would be talking. We would get to the point where we're going to talk about, you know, uh, Honest, look at honestly. Well, you know, what are the what are the appropriate boundaries? What are the appropriate boundaries in a dating relationship? Right? What can you do? What can't you do? All that kind of all those all those real life questions that teenagers are dealing with. And and as part of my uh, object lesson, I, I would bring in a ladder, a step ladder, and this ladder would represent all the different levels of affection in a dating relationship. Right? from holding hands all the way up. And I remember this one time I was teaching, and when I would teach on biblical dating to teenagers, it would really center around glorifying God in your dating relationship. Loving God and loving the person you're dating with in a way that this relationship would glorify him. 
would glorify him, that the heart of your dating relationship would just be to please God, love God, honor God, wherever you are, in every circumstance. Just love God as dating teenagers, right? Just love God. And we would go through this whole thing, right, about what it means to honor God, what it means to glorify God, and talk about you can do that even praying together and, and reading Scripture together. Even as high schoolers, you could do that just to glorify God. And I'll never forget this. We go through this whole teaching that the heart, the heart of a dating relationship, even in high school, is to glorify God, is to please God as a couple. And inevitably, a student comes up to me afterwards, and the ladders right here. Hey, got a question for you. Yeah? So how far can I go? What, what step? You see the heart issue? You see the problem with the question? He's living in doing and works. What can I get away with? When the whole time I've been talking to heart, we've been looking at biblical heart. The fact that he would ask the question, well, how far can I go, means that there's a heart problem. His heart isn't to honor and glorify God. His heart is still to work the system to get what he wants. That's what's going on here. This expert in the law has a heart problem, and he's trying to get Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? Let's, let's, Let's get all technical, because it's still about me. And how this is going to work for me. And how I can still do this. Right? So all of this conversation, these two questions, this heart issue, is the precursor, is the context for this parable. That's why Jesus says what he says. Now let's get to the parable. Right? The story. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return to you, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus tells this story, and its setting is what they call the Jericho Road. Jerusalem, it's a road, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem It's about 3,000 plus feet above Jericho. So in 17 miles, you're descending about 3,000 plus feet, right? It was also known as the Bloody Way or the Red Way because there were a bunch of robbers. They could hide. They would rob people. They would steal from people, and then they would scatter, right? And so the context, the story, the listeners would be like, okay, yeah, we've been on that road. We know that. We know that. Right? And so Jesus tells this story, right? And it says, he says, a man. What's really interesting is that he just says, a man. We don't know what his race was. It's just a man. That's what the Bible says, just a man. 
could have been anyone. We don't know anything about him other than he was a male. Right? So he's going down. He gets robbed, beat up, left for half dead. Right? Priest comes by, sees what's happening, says he passed by on the other side. A Levite, what was a Levite? A Levite was a priest's assistant. Okay? He was an assistant to the priest. And, and historians know that, that Jericho, so here's Jerusalem, here's Jericho. In Jericho, there lived a whole lot of priests and Levites. So after they were finished with their duties at the temple, it wasn't uncommon for them to travel down the road back home to Jericho. So a priest comes by, boop, walks around, says, oh, man, bummer. And he walks around, right? Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side as well. Right? And then a Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, took pity. Now, that word pity is actually in the, uh, the same word for compassion. In fact, in the English Standard Version, uh, Luke 10.33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. He had compassion, right? Jesus doesn't go into a lot of detail about why the priest and Levite went around. But this is an expert in the law. And other listeners would have assumed that the priest and Levite would have been the one to do something. To do something. A Samaritan of all people. Remember who he's talking to. Remember the context. He's talking to an expert in the law. A Jewish religious leader. When Jesus says a Samaritan. Woo! Red line. Why? Because Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. Jews thought Samaritans were half-breeds. They had intermarried. They had this different religion. They actually, going back to Nehemiah, opposed the building of the wall. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. In fact, Jews would call people Samaritans as an insult. They called Jesus a Samaritan as an insult. So suddenly, the priest and the Levite don't look so good in the story. Right? And suddenly, Jesus says, a Samaritan. And the expert in law goes, what? It, wouldn't be the, it would be the same as, as if this story is being told and Jesus uses someone from the Middle East that we don't feel really good about. And we go, what? Are you kidding me? That guy? I hate that guy. Why is he using him? Of all the people, Jesus chose a Samaritan. Crazy. And look what the Samaritan does. He he has compassion. He took pity. He bandages him. He pours oil and wine. That was kind of antiseptic was the wine. Oil we use for healing. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Many believe, depending on the quality of the inn, that was several weeks worth of lodging. Okay? And then... He opens, he opens his own tab. He says, hey, and by the way, look after him. When I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. A Samaritan does all of this. This expert in the law is reeling. Mostly out of conviction. Because he's the expert in the law. He's the religious guy. He's got the title. He's got the knowledge. And now Jesus says, this Samaritan is actually the neighbor. 
right? And then look at Jesus' question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, very interesting. You got to catch this. He didn't answer the guy's question, did he? The guy had asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in telling the story, says, hey, let's just let's not make lists. Let's not make boxes and checklists. Let me tell you what someone with the right heart does in a neighborly way. See, the guy wants, who is my neighbor? Who's in? Who's out? I can do that and still have a hardened heart. I can do that. We can do a lot of good, do-gooder stuff at this church without the right heart. It's just good moral stuff. Jesus doesn't. He says, no. Who was the neighbor? Meaning, whose heart demonstrated neighborliness? Whose heart? manifested itself right whose heart demonstrated compassion and look what the expert he can't even say the word samaritan the expert in the law replied no the one who had mercy on him (laughs) he can't even say samaritan oh the one who had mercy on him he's struggling because this samaritan had demonstrated a heart of compassion as revealed in his actions. He was neighborly. The priest and the Levite, the ones that were supposed to do it in the story, just walk on by. Just walk on by. And Jesus asks him this question. He replies, well, the one who had mercy on him. And then, look what Jesus says. Go and do likewise. Now, the weight, the weight of that, when it says go and do likewise, the, the verb tense is what they call present imperative, which means it's your lifestyle. Go and make this your lifestyle. See, it doesn't matter about your title. It doesn't matter about your religiosity. It doesn't matter about your head, your, your head knowledge about the law. I want you to go and do likewise. It's a heart issue. You're going to go and do likewise, it's going to have to come from your heart. It's going to have to come from your heart. And, and, and this, is, this is a moment, this is a moment where the expert in the law is presented a beautiful opportunity. And the same opportunity that, that, that you and I are presented with today. What are you going to do? What do I do when I'm confronted with the truth that in, if it's left up to me, it's impossible. It's so far beyond me. It is so far beyond me. I, I, I can't do that. Because, see, Jesus was really answering. The, the second part of, of the greatest commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. That does not mean... People have twisted that to some self-esteem thing where you're supposed to love yourself first. That, that's not what that means. Jesus is saying, hey, love your neighbor, be neighborly as much as you already love yourself. So a question for me and you this morning. How much do you love yourself? 
Let's see, how much time did you spend getting ready? How much care and concern do you have for yourself? When you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when I'm tired, when I don't want to go there, I want to do this, I don't want to do that. How many of us, if we're honest, and you don't have to put your hand up, pretty much love ourselves? We really do. Much of our life revolves around us, all right? If we're honest, here's me and here's the universe. And genuinely, I love myself so much that the universe is supposed to just take care of me. And, and Jesus say, hey, hey, Mr. Expert in the law, uh, I want you to love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself, buddy. Oh. That's impossible. If we're called to do that as we leave here in a few minutes, I'm done. You're calling me to go love the people in Libby as much as I love myself? I'm about to go have Cafe Emporium. <laughs> I don't want to be inconvenienced. That might make you, you want me to go buy them and bandage them and then pay for their lodging? You want me to actually self-sacrificially give and, and love someone with agape love, self-sacrificial love? Yeah, because that's how much love you generally have for yourself, buddy. Love your neighbor as you already love yourself. Oh, how many... I'm going to raise both hands. That's impossible in the flesh to do it continuously as a way of life. Now, I might have a one-off on a good day, and I can gear up for a mission trip, and I'm going to go give as long as the mission trip fits my schedule. Even mission trips, we sort of try to finagle to some level of comfort. Sometimes. Right? I mean, we're all the expert at some point, guys. The, the, the story isn't about a good Samaritan, therefore go, go be do-gooders. It's about, no, doing good in the biblical sense is impossible in the flesh. And Jesus is lovingly saying, hey, Mr. Expert in the law, I'm giving you this incredible opportunity to just come clean. Just be honest. You can't do it perfectly. In, the, in your own, you are, it is literally impossible for me or for you, Mr. Expert, to love my neighbor as myself. If I'm just point blank honest, that is just crazy. In the flesh. Right? And he's presented this opportunity, the same one we are today. What are you going to do with that? The first time Jesus confronted him and he says, do this and live, he responded with self-righteousness and justification. He reared up. Well, who is my neighbor? He kind of got mad. He got defensive. He felt some conviction and he got in. It's normal. Right? A lot of us, if you feel conviction, pride, self-righteousness, even though I know I'm 100% wrong, yeah, i got to justify myself. Well, you don't understand. Well, there was a... Self-justification is pride. We just can't admit guilt. I'm done. You got me busted. Right? Busted. I'm busted. 
So Jesus tells this story to bring him back again to this opportunity to respond to what the mirror says. He just shows him a mirror of himself. He just shows me a mirror of myself in this area. And what's interesting, if you look at the story, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Cue music, because the story doesn't get all cleaned up, does it? We don't know what he did. We don't know how this expert in the law responded. We don't. And I think that that's intentional because it's just out there for us today. What are you going to do? What do I do? Even in this area of compassion, when we are confronted with, that's impossible, man. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Go and do likewise. Love my neighbor as I love myself. Do this perfectly. What? What do we do with that? And the same opportunity afforded to the expert is is honestly afforded to us this morning. Just admit it. Just admit, that's impossible. That's so beyond me. You're talking about sinning once and being guilty of all. Well, okay. Don't let the the self-justification, don't let the pride ruin this moment for you. Just, Just come to the cross. Just come to the cross and say, Jesus, you got me. You're right. It's a heart issue. Everything in me wants to make it about checklists and do's and don'ts and brownie points and earning. But you got me. You got me. It's impossible in my own. And Jesus says, I know. That's why I was sent. You see this cross right here? That is the ultimate sign of compassion. That is God's compassion for you and for me. All we like sheep have gone astray. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's God's compassion. He says, look, you can't do this and live. It's impossible. The whole point of the law was to show me and you that we need God's compassion. That's just the whole point. And that's what makes the church such a beautiful thing. Because when we gather as the church, as the redeemed, we all look at each other and we go, isn't God's compassion incredible? Because none of us deserve to be here, Martin. Because it was one and done for all of us. And we're just all here by the grace and compassion of God. Amen? That levels the playing field in the church, guys. But we every Sunday, oh, how's your world? How, how are things going? Good. How's life? Good. How's your family? Good. Everything is good. And we start comparing ourselves in the church. And man, I'm not as holy as her and her. And oh gosh, she knows that. We get all twisted up in trying to compare ourselves and doing good. And when God says no, what is the church made up of? People who have just responded to my compassion. And then what we do here is simply out of that same compassion. That's the joy of giving it freely. When you receive God's compassion freely and grace, then it simply flows through you back into the world, and you give freely. The men that went up and dug ditches yesterday, that's just God's compassion being manifested. 
the youth that were here and enjoyed an all-nighter Friday night, that's just God's compassion from the leaders coming out to them. When we go to Uganda and Mexico, when you serve someone in this valley, it should just be, out of a, first and foremost, out of you having received God's compassion. And then you just let it go. Nothing expected, no brownie points, no gold star from God. You just let it go. Because freely you received, freely give. The basis of all that we do here is just that we're all in need of God's compassion. We humbled ourselves. We said, Lord, ah, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your compassion. And he opened your eyes to the truth of Jesus. You receive his compassion by faith in Christ. He softens and changes your heart. And then by golly, you become a conduit of the very same compassion that you simply received. That's all it is. Galatians 3 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us from the curse of the law. You lovingly and with compassion told the expert in the law a story that was so far out of the box that he was exposed in his heart. He so badly wanted it to be about earning and doing. And you said, no, it's about loving. It's about loving God first. And out of that love for God, loving others. Being neighborly. And the expert struggled because he was convicted. In his pride, he reared up like we all do. My prayer for us this morning is that rather than pride, we would just simply receive your grace and compassion. The Jews called you a Samaritan in John 8, 48. They meant it as an insult, but as I think about it, really, if you're the Samaritan, then we're the wounded ones on the road. And you were sent by God, and you saw us beaten up, left for dead spiritually. And in your grace and in your compassion, you've come to give us new life. Lord, in these final moments before communion, would you please speak to our hearts? And if we've been consumed with the doing versus the being, just receiving your grace and compassion, then set us free this morning. If we've never put our faith in Jesus, if if Christianity has been somehow about doing good and about works, I pray we'd be set free this morning to understand it's just about compassion, receiving God's compassion 
first and foremost, for those of us who can never keep the law.